This episode is brought to you by Progressive, home of the Name Your Price tool. You say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. It's easy to start a quote. Visit Progressive.com to get started. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, March 1961, an Atlanta-area woman by the name of Ruby Doris Smith Robinson is attending her first meetings of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC, which we've discussed a few times on this show, I think. But Smith Robinson is, at that time, a student at Spelman College, the HBCU in Atlanta, and has been active for a few years in civil rights protests, and now she is starting to link up with SNCC, which would be an incredibly important organization throughout the South, particularly in these years through the first half of the 1960s, doing voter registration drives and more throughout Georgia and other states in the South. And Ruby Doris Smith Robinson would play a big part in SNCC. She would play a number of roles across their efforts. And then she would also, over the years, more and more, start to speak out about the gender and racial dynamics within the organization and across the civil rights movement as a whole. So we've been wanting to talk about the life and work of this really remarkable person for a while, but this is also a chance to talk about some of those dynamics around particularly gender within the movement. So... Here to do that, as always, are Nicole Hemmer of Vanderbilt and Kelly Carter-Jackson of Wellesley. Hello there. Hello, Jody. Hey there. Can I tell you what the first thing that always strikes me when I see these stories? Just how young everyone is. Right? <laughs> They're babies. I mean, <laughs> babies, right? And, and I mean, you know, it's We did incredible. nothing with our lives. We did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we wasted away <laughs> but, all so, of our youth. <laughs> so, you know, just to, just to revisit some of those dates, you know, it's March 1961 is this moment when Ruby Doris Smith Robinson, I think she's a sophomore at Spelman at this point, but she's visiting SNCC having already had a legacy of protests and already having been involved in the movement for a while since she was like 14, 15, 16 years old. And that's, I think, the interesting thing here because she's, you know, carrying this legacy and this work that she's already done into a new organization that is then going to push things forward. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of yeah. remarkable. It's also remarkable that like when it comes to SNCC, she had done all of this activism before and she wasn't actually sure she wanted to join SNCC because she was like, yeah. uh, it seems like all they do is like planning meetings and, and I don't do enough. <laughs> right. Like, let's let's get our bodies out there. Yeah. I mean, that's what's so wild about this story is that she doesn't necessarily think they're as hands-on as she wants them to be. She finally joins and decides to become a part of, you know, one of the, the first missions that she's a part of is, is to talk about jail versus a uh, bail issue. And she gets arrested. And not only is she arrested, but she sentenced the 30 days in jail, like, as your first. Can you imagine that? Being, like, 19, 20 years old, and you finally decide you're going to join an organization, and then, as a result, you get sentenced to 30 days in jail? Like, that's wild to me. Snick no, was like, no. is this real enough for you? Can yeah, you I, know, right? now? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, and I suppose this is, this is a chance to talk a little bit about what Snick was, um, you know, and this coalition, I would say, of kind of often white northerners often coming um, to the south. I think voter registration was often the main charge um, among it. And, you know, but it had this sort of like policy bent to it. And you mm -hmm. can see 
where then Ruby Smith Robinson would be feeling like, well, I've been out in the streets. Mm-hmm. I've been doing sit-ins. I've been like feeling the brunt of this issue you know, at a street level. And so the sort of let's sit around and have planning meetings thing isn't exactly where I'm at at this mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, SNCC as an interracial organization is actually an important part of its its mission, right? So many of the early parts of activism um, that Smith-Robinson is involved in are things, as you were saying, Jody, like sit-ins. And many of those sit-ins mm-hmm. were done by integrated groups because they were attempting to demonstrate this message of integration. Um, and that becomes an important component of SNCC, that they're modeling the world that they're hoping to build. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've seen those iconic images of like uh, the Woolworths lunch counter um, on February 1st and just how the kind of courage you had to have to sit at that lunch counter and have people harass you and taunt you and throw food on you or spit on you. Um, Those pictures are still gripping to this day. And to think of those people who are engaged in that activism being teenagers or, you know, in the first few years of college makes it all the more gripping. Um, One other just tidbit here is this moment where, well, I guess it's March, you know, so she's still in school, but like, it's important to remember because they're all so young. This is what you would do in your summers, you know, and I'll, I'll talk yeah. about this a little bit more in a minute, but you know, my, my mom spent a couple summers working with SNCC in, in the South and a couple years after this, but you know, there was a freedom summer because that's when like the kids were off school mm-hmm. and a lot of the Northern kids were off school, but also here, you know, she's in Spelman, where is she finding time? And a lot of her sort of it seems like a lot of her path towards being more involved with SNCC is literally when like all the groups that she's involved with at Spelman school ends. I still want to be in the, in the fight, you know, mm-hmm. where, where's, where's the next meeting, you know, and it's, and it's with SNCC and that's how she sort of finds her way in. That circulation between the campus and the movement yeah. is really important, not only because it means that she is getting more involved in the broader Atlanta freedom movement, um, but those white kids coming from the North and the West will go spend their summers in the South and then they'll go back to places like Berkeley and they will bring with them this community commitment to civil rights activism. And this leads yeah. to a lot of the, the campus protest that you'll mm-hmm. see not just in the South, but across the country. Yeah. And of course, that flowed into the you know Vietnam mm-hmm. era mm-hmm. as well. And, I was just going to say that, yeah, it, yeah, it becomes a snowball for a lot of different protests that are all really interrelated. Can I ask you a question about a little bit of her biography? And maybe I'm reading too much into this, but you know, she is from Atlanta. She's born in 42. Um, she grows up in like, I would say, you know, an upwardly mobile black community within mm-hmm. Atlanta, you know, and her parents are, her dad is a Baptist minister. Her mother is a beautician. She goes to college, you know? And so I'm, I, I wonder mm-hmm. if like Ruby's class plays into this at all. And so I don't know. I don't know what you make of that. I think in some ways, I don't want to use the word privilege because that's fraud, but like sure. the idea that her parents are professionals and that they are not dependent upon white businesses for their profession. So everything that they're doing is pretty much in the black community. There's a lot of protection in that, but also prosperity as well when you are not having to be dependent upon, you know, being a domestic worker or a migrant laborer or something that's more labor intensive. The fact that she's going to college is still huge. Like, I mean, she has a lot more 
economic mobility than most black people in the South do. Uh, the fact that she can, you know, is of a big family and she's still going to college. Most big families were big families because they needed children to work on the farm, you know, or they needed children to help pick cotton during the summertime. She's not far removed from that space at all. But I also think she kind of falls into the same uh, spaces like, you know, the bougie black Atlanta where you have like kings coming out of that moment too. Angela Davis mm-hmm. is coming out of that moment in which you do have pockets of very successful black communities that are thriving, but are still committed to the cause of, you know, integration and social justice. And I I wonder, too, if that experience of growing up in a kind of independent black community not only gives her family a kind of economic stability, but actually feeds into some of her later criticisms around SNCC, Mm -hmm. um, around colorism and around Mm -hmm. the um, disparities, not just between the black and white activists, but among the black activists. Mm hmm. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What well, do we want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, she you know, yeah. comes in, she gets pretty active, and then given a fair amount of responsibility. Well, actually, let's talk a little bit about that because we've, we've mentioned this a few times on shows, but you know, the kind of work that women were assigned within movements versus mm. the ones that, that, that men were. Your thoughts on that? So many thoughts. <laughs> I, this is what gets me so mad because like this is in, you see this in SNCC, you see this in the CLC, you see it in, um, you know, CORE and the Black Panther Party. All of these freedom struggle groups have a real sexist problem. They just do. And the marginalization of women is so rampant that it's very difficult for women not to participate. Their participation is clear, but to get them out in the front, to allow them to have the microphone, to allow them to really be seen and prominent um, is hard. Oftentimes, you know, women were relegated to, hey, go get my coffee and hey, go run this errand um, and not given the same level of responsibility and respect that men were given. And it's one of the reasons that you see the nascent second wave feminist movement coming yep. out of these groups. I mean, there's yeah. um, Casey Hayden and Mary King write this um, this piece called Sex and Cast, a kind of memo, where they're talking about how the members of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, they were all about liberation and breaking down the walls of oppression. And then they were like, oh, you're a girl. You, you can go get the coffee. Or, yeah. oh, you're a girl. I'll have sex with you. And then I'll go, mm-hmm. you know, out and save the world. And so that it was recreating the old hierarchies in a movement that was supposed to be anti-hierarchical was a real awakening moment for a lot of activists. I mean, the most, one of the most famous lines, Stokely Carmichael, when he said the most prominent position of a woman in SNCC is prone. You know, like, like basically they're just here for, for sex. Um, I mean, and even when you backtrack that, like the damage is done, you know what I mean? So in terms of getting people to like have a different level of visibility for women and women in leadership was a hard fought battle and still is to this day, I think a hard fought battle to get those voices, you know, some volume. It's a sign of how 
radical these liberation critiques were, that if you apply them to one part of society, that language and that message then spills over into all of these other hierarchies in ways that are, I think, unpredictable. Yeah. And that's what Spellman did for her. Like, I think when you go to all girls school and they tell mm-hmm. you, you know, you're getting your education and you are a leader. Um, I think maybe she would have had a different political outlook had she been at another school. Yeah, that's true. And Stokely Carmichael, I mean, you know, you mentioned that quote. He also mm-hmm. said of her, of Robinson, he said, you know, she was convinced that there was nothing that she could do. She was a tower of strength. And yeah, clearly she had within her a sense of like, I can just do whatever I want and I'm going to speak up when I see something that's that's wrong. Um, you know, I mentioned that my my mom had spent a couple summers in Mississippi uh, as part of the Freedom Summer stuff, and this was in 64. Um, I called her up this morning to see if she kind of recognized this name or knew anything about this, and she didn't. You know, she said, you know, if you were in a small town or a certain part of a, of a state, you probably didn't interact with much of the bigger leadership. But she certainly talked about how the kind of work that women were given, white women and black women within the movement, you know, was very gendered. And so like, you know, mm-hmm. oh, you're a woman at best, you know, you're going to be teaching, right? But you're not going to be out there doing mm-hmm. the voter registration. You're certainly not going to be the voice of this movement in any way, you know, and who's standing in front of the cameras, who's being quoted in papers, who's, mm-hmm. you know, it was always the men who were pushed forward. But she also said that she felt like there was this both tacit, but also just sort of like, you know, uh, that if questions of sexism would come up, it was kind of like, we're dealing with racism here, right? Mm-hmm. And don't distract from the main thing, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea of intersectionality didn't, you know, wasn't, yeah. people, that language wasn't there, but it was sort of used as a cudgel of like, no, we're not gonna deal with that right now. We can't deal with that. We have to focus on, you know, the task at hand, which is mm-hmm. uh, racial segregation. And so, um, you know, there was that dynamic going on as well. Black women have always had to sort of check their gender at the door or put their blackness at the forefront. And so, um, I mean, it's it's like, listen, make him walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, but you know, I think that instead of like conquering all of these battles at once, it's like we're going to conquer this one first, and then next mm-hmm. one, and then your issues are a little further down the line. They had a not just a hierarchical way of how they saw leadership, but a hierarchical way of how they understood oppression and who was being hurt, harmed the most. Um, and yeah, again, it's it's a common unfortunate theme in a lot of uh, these these movements that are happening in the 60s and 70s. But it's interesting now, though. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I fast forward to today and I feel like you look at Black Lives Matter started mm-hmm. by three black women. You look yep. at a lot of the movements that are taking place now and it's the women that are the most vocal, I think. I think that's so important, Kelly. I was actually just teaching about Black Lives Matter this morning, and it's two queer black women and a woman who's an immigrant from Nigeria who had to deal for a while with undocumented status. And they create an organization that is purposefully anti-hierarchical in the way that like Mm -hmm. Occupy Wall Street was. And I think a lot of that is in reaction to this earlier history, that there is something um, about the exclusion of these earlier movements that this kind of post-Joshua generation in particular is eager not to replicate. Mm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think what I love about the show is how we recover voices that most people don't know uh, but there's a really good book for people who want to know more called Hands on the Freedom Plow and it's the personal accounts of women in SNCC and it's edited by about a half a dozen uh, women who were all members of SNCC but it's a, a really thick 
fantastic collection of, you know, uh, what people experienced during their activism and how they uh, worked to, to get a lot of change, but also the struggles that were in front of them that sometimes felt insurmountable. Um, and there is also a book called Soon We Will Not Cry, The Liberation of Ruby Doris Smith Robinson by Cynthia Fleming. And so, you know, we should shout out that as a sort of full-fledged biography of her. Um, but yeah. Okay. Well, this is really fascinating. And mm-hmm. I'm sure we will return to SNCC and the Freedom Rides and lots more uh, in the future. But for now, I say thank you to Nicole Hammer, as always. Thank you, Jody. And thanks to you, Kelly Carter-Jackson. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Our researcher and producer is Jacob Feldman. Our producer is Brittany Brown. Our transcripts, which you can find on our website, are done by Kala Nakua. This Day in Esoteric Political History is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a network of independent, creator-owned, listener-supported podcasts. Audrey Mardovich, executive producer. Yuri Lasorda, director of operations. Thanks to all of you who support this show by being members of Radiotopia. Find transcripts, sign up for our newsletter, find us on social, suggest topics, all that and more at our website, thisdaypod.com. See you soon. It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is, our democracy is broken. We can all feel it, and there's data to back it up, too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact, though? Money! You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us/podcast to find out more. Radio Tokyo.